Welcome back, everyone, to the Whitetail Theories podcast. Uh, today is going to be a two-part series. Guests on this podcast are the one and only Dave Owens, owner of the Pinhoti Project, and Serviceside member Grant Fisher. We're going to be talking turkeys and starting our uh, turkey tour or uh, turkey podcast series. So sit back. There's a ton of nuggets in here that Dave uh, brings to the table as well as Grant. How you doing, fellas? Doing well, buddy. How about you? Hanging in there. Uh, like you, it's been uh, a busy, quote-unquote, off-season. So for this podcast, um, as most of our listeners know, I'm not super experienced when it comes to turkey hunting, and Grant's going to run point. Uh, he's going to take us down a few different rabbit holes, and we're going to be talking all things turkey. So I'm going to turn it over to you, Grant. Sounds good. Glad to be back. And to start it off, Dave, just for anybody who doesn't know about the Penhody Project, if you can explain what it is and if you got anything new coming out this year. Um, yeah, uh, just a little bit about the Penhody Project. Just a, just a guy with a video camera that uh, himself as a, somewhat of a simplistic turkey hunter, uh, minimalist, I guess you could say. Um, I don't know if traditional is a, lot of, a word that a lot of folks like to use, but I don't think that's accurate because we're not hunting these things with flint locks or anything. So um, just uh, just a little bit more of a um, uh, hands-on kind of uh, strategy kind of is what we stress, but I stress what I think is most important uh, in the game of turkey hunting. Um, and then uh, as far as, um, you know, that kind of, you know, just a turkey hunter dragging a video camera and, documenting the, the everyday kind of puzzle that it that it is when we uh hunt like we do and um anything new um no it's kind of been the same same song and dance for the last uh, handful of years with this thing we're just trying to keep it realistic and relatable and, um as far as uh, anything new we're just kind of like everybody else we're kind of getting behind this conservation mindset that i think has uh surfaced as almost imperative um, you know, for wild turkeys and uh, trying to uh, just, you know, shine a positive light of what appears to be more or less like a, a dark cloud that's hanging over the turkey hunting population, turkey hunting, turkey hunting populations. I won't say there's a dark cloud of turkey hunting because I think it's, uh, you know, because it's, it's seen as seen more motivation behind it, more, it's more popular. It's, it's, it's the, it's the, it's the you know, the catchy thing now, and I think that's a positive thing for turkeys, and we're just trying to keep keep it, keep it moving in that direction. So <clears throat> I think that probably rounds out that question. I think I, I, think I hit on all what it was asking, I hope. Why, why yes. do you think uh, turkey hunting has gained so much popularity? Because I've noticed that as well in uh, the recent years. Of why, why it's gained such popularity? Mm-hmm. Um. It's it's been on the upward tick for a long, long time, and I think it kind of got stagnant there um, because people a lot of times need motivation. Uh, just because you know media and stuff drives a lot of motivation nowadays. Like what people have accessible uh, kind of drives their motivation. And I'm probably doing a terrible job of explaining this. Um, I think there wasn't there was not very much relatable media to. Uh, to just the everyday guy that picks up his gun and his turkey and hunting. And while I'm not sure, I mean, I'm sure it, to, to a certain degree we've created new hunters. I think what we've done um, is just motivated the folks that already hunted, already had kind of a background or a little bit of a foundation that just kind of showed them what was out there, what was uh, accessible to them with, uh, with effort. 
Wisconsin. You didn't have to be rich to do this kind of stuff. It's not like elk and moose or, you know, a lot of these big game species that um, it's kind of very expensive to kind of forge into. Um, Turkey hunter uh, Doc Weddle called it the cheap man's big game. So you don't have to have a lot to, to really experience everything that, it has to offer. And I think uh, some of the media that started hitting the outlets kind of showcased that. And the folks that were coming in on their back 40 are now kind of uh, broadening their horizons and really themselves and getting more, getting more out of, uh, out of turkey hunting, which is, which is really cool. And I think that's what's kind of driven it to become, you know, popular uh, over the last handful of years. <clears throat> gotcha. No, that makes a lot of sense. And if you can now go into how you got started hunting and what makes turkey hunting to you different than other types of hunting. Oh man, I started hunting. Um, my dad was a snapper. He was he was in the woods all the time for deer. And um, I don't know what started me into turkey hunting. Just something grabbed me about turkey hunting. Probably dog. One of those young kids just running around the woods and can mimic whatever I heard and kind of. Uh, manipulate the language and kind of get close to them, get them to come to me, that kind of thing, whether it was, you know, a dove or owls or whatever. So the, the communication, the dialogue, really, I found intriguing and, and probably the main, um, you know, that key factor that me to turkey hunting. But, uh, I mean, it was just one of those things that the, the deeper I, you know, got into into learning about them and, and their characteristics and, and just their tendencies. It's just everything was just fascinating to me, and, and uh, that drew me into the turkey hunting kind of cult. Yeah, for sure. It's just a different experience than, say, a deer or a duck or whatnot. Say when you're deer hunting and a deer walks up, and even if you scouted the area, but deer walks in and you kill it, you don't get the whole experience that you get from killing a turkey where you talk to the turkey, you scout him before the season or whatnot, and call him in from so far and even whether it's just a five ten minute turkey hunt you help him up and kill him in 10 minutes or it's an all-day kind of thing you get the actual experience with the bird rather than just any other animal where it's just walking through the woods and you're able to kill it yeah man it's uh it's definitely a different flavor um than than the majority of which i think is why folks that are quote-unquote turkey hunters they're they're passionate you know what i mean Um, i just on another podcast and it was a a uh, handful of guys that were big into the waterfowl industry, and they made note of that. It really kind of um, made me come to the realization that, you know, they're they're right. Like, the waterfowl world is passionate, the deer hunting world is passionate, but there's just another level. When it gets to, when it gets to turkey hunters and people that consider themselves turkey hunters, um, there's, an, there's just a, a different level of obsession there. You don't find a whole lot of people that just barely take a lick at turkey hunting, you know? Um, the people at Turkey Hunter are pretty doggone, um, I mean, they're obsessive about it. They, they do it a lot. They, that's what they're, you know, a lot of these folks consider themselves turkey hunters before anything else. Um, so. Absolutely. And continue on the conservation standpoint. Can you talk about how you're using your platform to push conservation, whether the pin hoodie roast through turkeys for tomorrow or the save the leg shirts or just pushing um, trapping nest predators, where they're just getting a few dog proofs in people's hands and getting them in the woods with them. Yeah, man. Um, like we mentioned earlier, the popularity of turkey hunting. Um, I just feel like if any brand out there is uh, is benefiting from turkeys uh, and has a platform uh, that 
is able to reach people who care about turkeys, they should be using it um, because there's no no uh, uh, if ands, or buts about it. I mean, we're taken from the resource. The reason we're so passionate and obsession about these things is because we get to hunt them and we kill them, um, and there's no sugarcoating that. They die. Um, so if we're not putting as many on the landscape as we're taking off, then this thing is not sustainable. Um, and if you're passionate and you love something like many of us do, wild turkeys, all of them not being there, it's not acceptable. So, um, yeah, you know, we do the Pinhoti roast, uh, coffee blend, and that's, that's raised, goodness, um, thousands of dollars that we've donated to wild turkey research through turkeys for tomorrow. And then, um, you know, right here at the, at the, the popular time, the, 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 at the time of year that we need to be intensively trapping nest predators, we launched the Save the Legs little hashtag feature. Um, we gave away a few dozen coon traps to folks uh, as an incentive to buy the shirt and to get, you know, motivated about trapping. And we also took all the profits from those shirts and also donated it to the wild turkey research. And um, I think that's important. Like I said, I think it's important if a, if a brand wants to be centered around wild turkeys, considering the the discussions around their populations and the difficulties they're seeing and the challenges that they've got to face and the hurdles we need to help them get across. I think it's very important for any brand that considers themselves, a, you know, a turkey brand to be discussing those things and then, you know, taking action. Um, you, you walk the walk if you're going to talk the talk, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Um, it's really frustrating to me, focused on the popularity of turkey hunting, uh, created brands, um, you know, and, and got any type of following off, of, off the popularity of turkey, not taking a moment to uh, to give back to the resource. I think that's that's could be a requirement, you know. Um, and um, you know, there's just a lot of things that come with the popularity. There's more eyes on turkey hunting. There's more eyes on turkeys and how they're managed. There's more eyes on our agencies that are making a lot of these calls and um, you know, that, that's all super beneficial and, and very important, but while we have the opportunity to use uh, the popularity, we should, we should probably be using it for, for everything it's worth. That's, you know, memberships for these concert organizations and, uh, everything in between. So you mentioned turkeys for tomorrow, and I know they're a fairly new organization and some people on the podcast may not have heard about them. Uh, if you can take a second and just explain what turkeys for tomorrow is for people who don't know about them. Um, Turkeys for Tomorrow was just a I mean, just a grassroots nonprofit uh, wild turkey conservation organization. Uh, they are looking at um, you know doing the same thing that's been done for many many years, working with wildlife professionals, conservationists, uh, agency professionals, if when possible, um, to uh, you know to kind of try to get some of these answers to the questions that we just really don't have solid answers or just maybe some more answers, some more options for, for a lot of these wildlife professionals to implement. Um, they're focused on, on wild turkey research. It's kind of been that main uh, focal point so far. Uh, you're right. They just launched like a little less than a year ago. So brand new, um, but they've already got a lot of uh, research on the ground. Um, we've, uh, uh, they, they talked about the, the three, uh, three or four research projects each each one of these projects seems um growing legs and, and growing more legs the more time they're out there and the more 
exposure they get. Uh, um, you know, they're, they're discussing now. Uh, every, every time you turn around, there's a different aspect that's now someone else has kind of come on board with, donated funding to make it possible. But they're looking at, um, you know, the gobble chronology, uh, which is something, you know, the THP guys and Chamberlain uh, had, a, had a project, and we've got, like, the private land side of that uh, through TFT that, that they've kind of um, joined in on. Um, uh, several different uh, things that we can learn from that, um, even all the way down to hope the dynamics of eventually. I'm, I'm like I said, I'm a biologist, but, um, you know, I, I trust the guys that are in the know. <laughs> And, and it'd be a lot uh, clearer explanation when you talk to one of those. They know, they know the accurate um, adjectives and, and uh, subject matter to, to approach when it comes to these projects. But you know, we've got the gob. They got the TFT. Another one of them is the gobbler fertility study. They're going to be looking and essentially, if all gobblers are created equal, uh, can Jake successfully breed? Always a question. Um, we've got. Um, there's a disease uh, aspect, well, which is something that I'm I'm extremely interested in. Um, something that I think is kind of like a an elephant in the room that hasn't been kind of discussed uh, nearly in length as, as some of these other topics about turkey populations and stuff has. Um, but there's you know there's several projects that um, TFT's kind of spearheaded and gotten started here in Alabama. Um, you know, you got more nest uh, nest success, poult recruitment. You know, fitting hens with backpack transmitters. So, anyway, all that to say, yeah, they're a brand new organization. They're putting their money where their mouth is. Um, something I think that everybody should kind of uh, get behind. And um, and yeah, I'm excited about their future. And also, how do you think we can go about getting the everyday hunter to focus on turkey management year-round and not just from when their season starts to when their season closes? Because we all know a lot of people just want to think about the animal during when the season's in versus what they could be doing for turkeys when and during the months of the year when turkey season is not in. Just making them popular, which is exactly what we're doing. I mean, making them uh, realize that, you know, I think what happened, um, we – Turkeys kind of were reintroduced, and they went through this huge boom period, and everybody saw turkeys in all the fields when they were driving by. They were hearing turkeys every spring with little effort as far as management specifically for the turkeys. Um, I think turkeys kind of outgrew themselves and, and kind of plateaued, and um, it was still plenty of turkeys for folks to hunt, for folks to see on the regular, so we kind of thought that turkeys were taking care of themselves. We'd done to do, and we were good for, for a long time for, for good, clear sailing. But I think what we're finding out now is that's not the case. Um, and what we've realized that this resource, these birds that we are so passionate about are, are fragile. You know, as a resource, they're pretty fragile. Um, without some um, intensive or uh, direct management specifically targeting them or upland game birds in particular, I think, um, they find it a challenge. They can't live in parking lots and in, you know, they find it more difficult to live in areas that many other animals can. You know, you see deer in kudzu patches. Turkeys can't live in kudzu patches, you know. Um, so I think we're doing what we need to do. We've got to keep it popular. We've got to keep people talking about it. We've got to keep um, 
listening to these wildlife professionals that essentially just haven't gotten the attention that they should have over the last decade. They've been talking about decreasing poultry in numbers and kind of some red flags that were popping up. But here again, people were still seeing turkeys in fields and they weren't, they weren't as um, concerned as they probably should have been. But we've got those folks with microphones now and, and people are listening. So I think we're, we're on the right road. I want to jump in here real quick uh, just to add a comment and kind of piggyback off of what Dave's saying here. I think one of the things as as a turkey hunter that we need to also pay attention to is the habitat management side of things. When you're talking about poult recruitment and you're talking about uh, the future of turkey hunting for potentially the next generation and generation beyond that one, I feel like a lot of people have kind of gotten away from the old school mentality of how timbers managed so for example like here in pennsylvania we've for the most part kind of really gotten away from clear cuts and when clear cuts occur and then rejuvenate you have that high increased stem density where you're providing nesting habitat and then you're also providing cover for faults to survive where they can get away from and hide from nest predators uh we're seeing a lot of our forests up here in the in the northeast basically turn into a a more mature canopy where there is no understory and i think that's something that really really flies under the radar when it comes to hunters and understanding conservation is you got to take care of the habitat first it's like you said turkeys can't live in kudzu patches turkeys can't live in parking lots having warm season grasses that kind of stuff native habitat on the landscape is extremely important. Yeah, absolutely. And these guys that have now got the ears of a of a of a larger uh, community, uh, that's exactly what they're preaching. You know, I think the typical turkey hunter um, now knows a lot more about the requirements of the habitat, the habitat requirements of the turkeys that they hunt. I mean, I think they are now more educated, and the more educated population is going to be more effective. Um, and I think that's what we're seeing in the turkey hunting circles right now is a constant discussion over uh, habitat and, you know, everything. But habitat is definitely, you know, one of those key factors. And it's always brought up in conversation and people are becoming educated and people are, are starting to understand what's necessary for turkeys to be successful and where we're liking. Like part of those, uh, what, you know, aspects of the habitat that uh that we're missing you know what we need more of essentially um and here again that's that's one of those things that's come with the popularity of turkey hunting it's come with um the exposure that turkey hunting is getting and um yeah like i said i think that's a, a huge part of this thing uh getting this you know getting this ship upright i hear from a lot of my friends sometimes saying that they don't know how they can make a difference because the only land they have access to is public land. And in South Carolina, we're not allowed to trap on public lands. How would you go about explaining to them the conservation aspect they can reach without having private land and only being able to hunt public? Yeah, it's a great question because we are, or I am finding more and more of these hurdles and hoops and loops that we got to go through to help. 
And that's, that's that in itself is how we can help is we can start forging into these agencies and asking these questions because a lot of these trapping regulations, like you mentioned, are, um, man, they can be revisited. Uh, most of these things haven't been, I don't, it doesn't appear that they've been, um, looked at or, or kind of, uh, brushed over since people were actually trapping furs for a living, you know, and, and making a livelihood off of it. It seems like the most regulation that I've been able to see a lot of it still pertains to that kind of stuff, which just isn't, a lot of that isn't realistic anymore. So uh, what can we do? I mean, we can start talking to our agencies on why we're not allowed to trap on, on public land. Um, start trying to separate, uh, the trapping, in my opinion, we need to start separating the trapping of like coons and fox and bobcats. We need to start start separating that from the from the much easier um, approaches necessary for like coons and possums. Um, these nest predators that I think make a really big impact on our nesting success. Um, we need to make trapping at least, at the very minimum, uh, more accessible for those critters. Um, you know, make it easier for folks that, that may live across the state line to go across and, and help in Alabama if they live in Georgia or help in Georgia if they live in Alabama, you know, helping they may live in Georgia and want to help over in South Carolina where they do a lot of person hunting. Um, I think that is, uh, is, is one of the ways that we can start um, figuring it's, it's not going to be a quick process. I mean, we found that out. I mean, there's every, every turn we take, it seems like there's some other hurdle that we're having to kind of get over but you know these trapping regulations and, and especially the inaccessibility put in place by some of the state agencies we have to get through that um we're seeing you know the bill from georgia um 47 i think it yeah, 1147 um it was just you know hit the committee um yesterday and that trying to free up um the ability to trap those possums and, and coons and you know, things of that nature, um, hit, you know, getting some attention, uh, which I think is huge. We can get that kind of movement kind of through a lot of the states. Just making it more accessible is going to be a, a step in the right direction for having more purchases. Um, and kind of uh, expanding on that topic a little bit more, is volunteer opportunities on public land um, and the uh, ability to help with like prescribed burning or, or whatever it may be. I made a post, gosh, it's like six months ago now, um, on kind of looking at the indirect um, effects of how you can volunteer on public land. Uh, say, for instance, something that's always accessible is, is helping pick up litter, helping clean up around parking areas, helping clean up roadsides. That has to be done. Like on our public lands, unfortunately, we have people that don't value them as, as, as much as probably you and I do, and they're going to throw trash and litter or whatever. Um, that's got to be picked up. We need to pick that up so that the place just doesn't become a, a landfill. If we don't do that, if the volunteers don't do that, your wildlife professionals, the guys, you know, your laborers, the technicians on these areas are going to have to do. They're going to have to devote the time picking up trash that they could be doing those prescribed burnings they could be blading roads they could be working on drainage to keep our roads high and dry they could be working on timber stand improvements they could be you know working on uh fall disking i mean they could be doing all of these things that they have the legality uh you know they're legally able a lot of us aren't able to do that you know with state agencies uh with their equipment you know on their land whatever or on our land but 
and that they manage. We don't have the ability to go out there and jump on their tractors and do some fall disking or whatnot, but the the technicians do. Um, so it's just, uh, you know, your volunteer efforts are freeing up some time for them to do that, that they don't have to be on the side of the road picking up beer cans. Um, people need to kind of realize that, you know. Um, you know, kind of viewing your uh, opportunities is, you know, you can always make a difference. Um, and uh, that, that's just one of the ways. Yeah, and I've had people tell me before, well, you only got so much land. What are you going to catch, 10, 15, 20 coons? Is that really worth your time or going to make a difference? But like you said before, a dead coon is a dead coon that's not going to raid a turkey nest. And the little difference you can make is a difference that is not going to be made unless you put an effort in to do it. And if you can trap on your place and then get to talking to your neighboring landowners and hopefully make a bigger effort trapping, it's all going to go for the good of the wild turkey. Yeah, the sex, uh, the um, the discussion around trapping is sexy. Um, people, you know, it's 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 relatable because people can see a more direct influence of trapping, or at least in their mind, they can see taking these nest raiders off the landscape, literally um, making a difference. They can they can visualize like that nest predator is not going to take a nest this year because he's no longer with us. Like, and that's what makes the conversation so sexy to most folks. I mean, it's it's just you know it's it's easier to visualize. Um, in reality, um, like I yeah, like you mentioned, I've said it time and time again. Uh, if a coon's in the back of your truck, um, upside down, he's not going to be able to interrupt the nesting cycle. Um, to make a big landscape level impact we've got to trap a lot of those guys um it's important for us to realize that we can't look at this as a uh an all you know just elimination of all coons we're not i mean we don't have the ability to do that you know but we just have to realize that these nest predators like coons and possums and whatnot they're just their their populations are busting at the seams for one reason or another and um it's 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 a human you know we've caused that in my opinion we're the we're the main we're the main factor uh that has allowed their population to kind of go just just through the roof and that's um you know negatively affecting all of our ground nesting birds so um you know it, it's up to us to make a difference up to that and i've, I've kind of went down a rabbit hole here and my mind's done forgot what I was actually going after, but uh, hopefully it answers the question. Yeah, for sure. And this year is actually the first year I've got out and done a little trapping myself, and dog proofs aren't that expensive, and yeah, it takes a little bit of your time to get out and set them and check them every day, but you know, your time's devoted in going to help the wild turkey, and it's a real rewarding feeling when you check your traps and have a few coons or possums or whatnot, and know that you're putting your time towards um, helping the turkey and giving back from what you the resource that you've taken from. The more folks we get to do it, the less one person has to do is the kind of the way I view this thing. Like, yeah, we have to have a, an intensive, huge impact. Um, so you can either have, you know, 10,000 people trapping one or one person trapping 10,000. So the more folks that we can get into this thing and kind of help with that, um, that effort, the better. And yeah, just, uh, again piggyback off of you guys in your conversation there the north american model of conservation doesn't work unless we control pe predators 
And that's across the bird or across the board, not just with turkeys. And we as hunters and conservationists have really taken a back seat when it comes to our, our small mammal uh, management as far as predators are concerned. Because like you said, Dave, a lot of the regulations and a lot of the imagery on, on trapping and small mammal management is based around the fur industry, which doesn't exist anymore, or at least doesn't exist in this climate right now. Yeah, that's very true as well. And to kind of go back off the public land talk, I know from the start of the Penhody project, you've had a few run-ins from people in Florida and other states on public. And for people who are just getting started hunting public land or just getting started turkey hunting in general in public is what they've got to hunt. Can you kind of go under, uh, over how you handle somebody on public land and the ethics and kind of the unwritten rules of hunting you can come to say about uh, just how you want to behave yourself on public land when it comes to other hunters? Um, it's just that written. It's just that golden rule of the treat doing to others you'd had them doing to you. Just put yourself in, in their shoes. It literally takes five seconds to stop and think for a minute and say, okay, if I was in their shoes, how would I want this to play out? Um, and essentially, if everybody did that, I think the interactions would all be positive. Um, public hand is a, is a phenomenal resource. Um, we're very lucky to, to live in a in an area and in a place that allows us to use it and enjoy it like we do. Um, but you know, a couple bad apples can really, can really soil an opportunity. Um, so if we all just judge like we would wish to be treated, I think, you know, public land is going to be much more enjoyable. Um, just the, you know, just the, just the, just the typical stuff, you know, the same reason that you wouldn't, um, I don't know. It's just like holding a door for a little old lady, you know. I mean, it's just it's just the common decency of of doing, you know, what what should be done. Um, if you slip in and and you you putting yourself in a position to to work a turkey, um, you don't want somebody else hearing you working that turkey, and you've got him gobbling, and you don't want them to to come in on you and and um, try to work the turkey from a different angle or try to slip in between you, like. You wouldn't want them to do that to you, so I think you should, you know, consider that if if that ever's crossed your mind, you know. Um, I don't know. Like I said, I think everybody can just uh, answer the questions yourself by just, you know, how would you hope that that if the shoe was on the other foot, how the situation would play out. Exactly, and I know I watched a hunt on Mossy Oak Go a few days ago where you had some boys from Georgia blowing a crow call right back behind you, and even though they were close by, you were still able to kill the turkey. And shortly after, they came running down the hill and recognized you, and you were able to have a good conversation with them and were positive about it, where other hunters may have been rude and jumped all over them about how they almost cost them the bird, but you are able to still get your bird and have a conversation with the guys and move on about your business. That's another thing. Like when we started doing this Kenoti Project thing, um, hunting and, and hunting public land was – kind of uh embellished i think uh as far as it's all good it's all great it's all enjoyable it's all everybody's high-fiving out there um it can be uh but there's some not so pretty aspects to it and when i started carrying that camera around i was like you know what it's important for folks to know that you know just like i mentioned earlier i mean you you bump into 
bad apples at the grocery store. You bump into bad apples at the gas station. Like bad apples are out there and hunting public land is except gonna be bad apples out there and there's you know, um there's gonna be some uh I don't wanna I hate to call it a confrontation, but hopefully there's less confrontations and more educated people come and the more like I said, the more they slow down and realize that, you know, hotheads are not, you know, Everybody's holding guns. We're all, you know, hotheads do not prevail in these type of situations. It's good to just approach the conversation, discuss each other's desires, and, you know, see if you can't come to a compromise there. Um, and, uh, you know, like in that situation in Alabama, those guys were, they were at a parking lot, and they heard a turkey goblin, and they started blowing a crow call, and <clears throat> I was on the turkey, and, Honestly, I was calling extremely soft, and it was they were already really tight on the turkey from their approach before I even started calling. So I don't know if they even knew somebody was working the turkey. Um, so it could have been complete innocence, you know. Um, but yeah, we had a good conversation. I think everybody left there happy. I mean, I I, I considered it a good conversation. I mean, heck, I was thrilled to to, to bump into somebody that uh. I don't know, was out there enjoying themselves, you know. That's what that's what we're all out there to do when it comes to this thing. Uh, they seem to be having a good season and just having a good time. So. And kind of still going off the public land kick, I wanted to hear what you consider essentials when traveling to turkey hunt and just when living on the road in general. And for somebody who hasn't done it much, what are some things that uh, you should say they should have in the truck with them when they hit the road? Oh, man, that's the beauty behind turkey hunting is you have to have a lot. You know, I can usually carry my vest and shotgun and – change of clothes and a pair of a couple of boots and that's all you need. Um if you're really wanting to uh to travel and, and do it on a minimal budget, um, you know, you've got to get comfortable being uncomfortable is what I say. Um most people want to slip in the back of a truck and have to stay in up under the in the cab of the truck when it's raining all day to you know, and have to figure out a way to dry your clothes when they get wet living out of the back of the truck when you can't go home and toss them in the dryer. I mean, um as far as essentials you know, just the stuff that you would walk out your back door and turkey hunt with. As long as you have that, a few small amenities like a sleeping pad is a big one. If you don't want to put a cot up in the back of your truck, I would definitely suggest getting some type of sleeping pad because it's a lifesaver, especially for folks that like to fly. I do a trip out west and live out of a rental car, which I've done many times. Um, for the first handful of years, I didn't do that sleeping pad. I didn't know any better. And then when I got one, it was a game changer. Um, you know, uh, a good sleeping bag is obviously uh, very important. Um, the main thing that I want to make sure that I, I have plenty of is socks, uh, because you got to take care of your feet. If you're on the road and you're, you know, you get blistered up and hot spotted up on your feet, it can really be a miserable experience. Um, as far as other essentials, man, there's they're just not much. You know, just doing your research before you hit the ground running on where you're headed, so that you can not get there and then start having to dig. I mean, kind of knowing where you're going before you get there, doing that prep work is, uh, is really important, but not totally necessary. You know, you can, you can kind of roll with the punches and live off, you know, kind of, you know, live on your feet, so to speak. And, um, but yes, any other essentials, man, my life revolves around keeping big camera batteries charged. And I don't think most folks are going to have that kind of issue. So, and kind of on the same topic, I know sometimes you'll take off on the road for a week or two weeks. How do you um, take care of all your meat and dispose of your birds? I know you keep your 
beards and your fans and your spurs but just how do you store your meat when you're on a trip for that long whether you're driving and driving back or on a plane and in a rental car and then flying the meat back with you yeah just keep it cold um we eat quite a bit of it too uh, we keep a cast iron and a single burner in there with me and i'll fry a turkey uh in a heartbeat but um yeah keep it cold um yeah no real rocket science there uh just um keep it on and and uh keep it cold yeah and i think you got a video on there you did with tanner say somebody kills a bird on the road and you got to fly back or drive back whatnot and has to clean the bird before they can get it to their taxidermist don't you have a video showing how to care for your bird and how to skin it out or cape it out so it's ready for a taxidermist when you get back yeah, we've got that for flying, and, and yeah, you can do it on the road however you like, but that's essentially the way you take the bird out and not have to haul a whole bird around if you wanted to get one get one mounted. But it's also very beneficial to, you know, if your taxidermist isn't somebody next door. Like if you wanted to ship it to, to them, I mean, it's it's good to have it prepared because it's all going to be reflected in the mount that you receive, you know. So, it, um it, uh, I felt I, I hoped it would be a very informative video for a lot of folks that may may need that help because I know for me as much time as I'd spent on the road and whatnot, um, I didn't know how to prep a bird for taxidermy. You know, I'd always you know, taken the whole bird and it just it just wasn't necessary. Yeah, I feel like that's something a lot of people don't know how to do when it actually comes to caping the bird out for the taxidermist and. Uh, it is a very informative video. I've watched it a couple times, and I feel like any traveling turkey hunter or turkey hunter in general that should watch it and learn how to do the process in case they kill a trophy and are not right near their taxidermist where they can get it to them that skinned them out. Yes, not not nearly as involved as, as you would think it would be. We uh, we did, Courtney killed a uh, beautiful Arizona turkey this year, and it was a giant, and we decided then and there, well, that bird's going on the wall. So we were able to string him up and get him all prepped. and. Um, we sent him straight to Tanner. Actually, no, no, Courtney flew back home with him and, uh, and I took him with Tanner. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, we were able to get that turkey prepped so that she was able to fly with him. So now I kind of want to dive more into the hunting aspect and calling setups, all that good stuff. And if you can go into what you're looking for in a setup when you got a bird gobbling or just setting up on a spot. I know you always say you want to be set up where that turkey can't see you until he's within range where you feel comfortable where you can kill him and kind of explain how you go about that. Yeah, that's super important. It's also be terrain and vegetation specific. Um, but yeah, I like to have the bird come to view right on the edge of shotgun range. I don't like the bird to come into view, you know, in arm's reach, which we have those type situations quite a bit with rolling terrain. Um, you know, steep terrain and, and that kind of hunting the ridges like we do in the mountains and, and whatnot. Um, so there's a, there's a happy medium there, I think. Um, but as far as setups, I mean, yeah, I mean, you gotta, you gotta keep the hen, uh, that he thinks they're kind of hidden so that he has to come investigate the sound and, um, let the, let the curiosity kill him. Uh, and it's best to put yourself in a situation that that's easy for him. You gotta, got to be where he wants to go somewhere he's familiar with or where he's used to hearing other turkeys you know um whatever's in his you know day-to-day life is, is what you want to kind of infiltrate so to speak you want to get yourself in there to seem so everything seems normal to him because if everything's something he's already seen before or he thinks he's seen before 
he's going to be much more likely to, to you know, peak in the middle. Absolutely, and I feel like setup's one of those topics you can talk about as much as you want, whether on a show, podcast, or in person. But it's kind of one of those things somebody can't learn until they get on the wood in the woods on their own and just have a few turkeys humble them and learn from unsuccessful hunts which can be always a great learning experiences and once you get humbled a few times eventually you'll start to learn and and figure out how to set up more on the birds yeah absolutely and that's that's the number one way of learning is, is just get out there and screw it up and and you remember those a lot more vividly than, than what somebody's telling you on youtube no doubt about that and for somebody that's never seen your youtube channel and say has only seen turkey hunting as you may see it on the outdoor channel, it's gobblers running into decoys or people sitting in ground blinds. Go about saying why you hunt the way you do with in the woods turkey hunting, calling the gobbler all the way to your gun with just your mouth open and what's in between your ears and why you enjoy doing it that way versus with the tools that are available in today's hunting world. Um, why, why, the way, I mean, the reason I approach turkey hunting the way I do is because I feel like that's what I, I need to do to get the most out of the out of the bird um i think a lot of these tools kind of cheapen the process so to speak i think um an analogy would be all right say um hey let's let's, let's go see the country let's go to the country let's go really kind of experience the country we have a, you know let, let's let's take off the car let's there's an rv let's take off from miami let's drive to seattle and let's really see the country and and, and see what the, you know, what it has to offer that'd be like jumping on i-10 and traveling up and then and taking the interstate system straight on through seattle straight on straight on through to seattle technically yes you've accomplished the task that you set to do you have driven across the country you have seen what was available on the interstate across the country but if you really want to tour and see the country you're going to have to get off the interstate you're going to have to get in the nooks and crannies that states have to offer the country, the rural area, the subject, you know, everything it has to offer you can't experience that from the interstate. And I feel like using these tools, um, yeah, it'll get you there. You know, you'll have a dead bird at the end of it. And if that's what you view as success, then, you know, by all means, uh, congratulations. But if you really want to enjoy and see and feel the process, you got to get off the interstate. You've got to get into those situations where you've got to make those little turns and make those little moves and, and decisions that are so important um, to accomplish the task without those tools. You know, I mean, it takes a, a lot more uh, strategy when when all you have is what's between your ears. You know, um, and I just that's just the way I've I've, I've viewed turkey hunting. And you know, this hasn't always been that way. I've I've turkey hunted and killed turkeys about every way imaginable. Um, so I can, I'm somebody speaking from experience. I've killed turkeys, decoys. I've killed turkeys hiding behind fans. Like I've done it all. And this is the most fulfilling experience that I've been able to find. And I've gotten to the point where if I'm going to kill one, if I'm taking one off the landscape and, and, and you know, uh, refusing him the right to breed and, and spread his seed from now on, then I want to make sure I get as much as I possibly can out of it. And um, something that you'll see in the 2021 videos that are coming out is, especially toward the later part of the season, um, I start talking about quality experiences and striving for quality experiences and, and wanting to 
uh, kind of fulfill uh, almost like the hunt needs some type of qualification. Not that any turkey's less than another, but it's just the experience that that uh, I require before I feel like I've really earned the right to, to kill the turkey. You know, I really fooled the turkey and, and uh, earned the right to, to claim him. Um, that's something I'm still working on. It's something I'm still, I guess, growing with. And I guess all turkey hunters, as we mature, we're going to kind of come to that point in time to where we kind of have to look in the mirror and, and figure out what we want to do with this thing, you know. And I don't know if that growth, I hope that growth never stops. Um, I hear some old times talking about all the different aspects of how they view the game and um, and whatnot. And some of those I can't relate with, and some of them I can, you know, and some of them I have thoughts run through my mind that 10 years ago I would thought was just asinine, but now it seems uh, feasible. So um, probably a long, drawn-out, wordy explanation to your question, but hopefully somebody can grasp what I'm, what I'm getting asked. <laughs> I think that's a great explanation, and I 100% agree with you. When I first started turkey hunting, it was a lot of ground blinds and fields and decoys and that type of stuff, and it's all great, and you kill turkeys doing it that way. But when I put the tools away and got in the woods, just my shotgun, mouthy upper turkey this, it took a few years to get my butt handed to me and the learning experiences. But once I finally learned the types of setups and calling, which obviously you never you know, never quit learning because if you never – if you were – knew everything it wouldn't be any fun left in the game but once i got my hands on things learned a little better i started killing a few turkeys and it's a much more rewarding experience knowing that you brought that turkey and fooled everything that that turkey has to be able to kill him with just you and what's between you and him and like last year i had a bird that took me four hunts to kill him and if i went a different way about it i might could have killed him sooner i might not could have just learning the woods and learning where that turkey lived and eventually being able to kill him was a great feeling where if I'd have just killed him on the first time using a tool available, then it probably wouldn't have been such a great feeling after getting it handed to me from him a couple of times and then being able to kill him. Yep. Thank you everybody for tuning in to the Whitetail Theories podcast. That now concludes part one. Part two should be released next week. Uh, keep an eye out for that wherever you're listening to your podcasts and don't forget to, uh, Give us a review on Google or wherever you're listening to your podcasts.